CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sun Joke All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sun Joke All. Hello and uh, welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTRLive, and look for the show as hashtag Big Data. Today's topic is Big Data Ethics, Privacy, Risks, and Principles. Our guest for today's show is Cord Davis, who is the co-founder of Design and Strategy Forum and is the author of the book Ethics on Big Data. Good morning, Cord. How are you? Uh, good morning, Sanjog. How are you? Very good. Now, big data has been a notorious buzz of late, and uh, whatever we may want to call it, but the practices associated with uh, this data collection and analysis are becoming more prevalent. Right now, it seems like at least people say that it's a wild west, and it looks like companies are using this technology and this data to determine quite a lot. And uh, there's little regard so as to what's actually serving the customer versus what is plain creepy. So today, uh, this conversation is going to be something of a moral discussion, but it's not just a soapbox to preach about the evils of big data. It's actually a chance to define principles and boundaries and, and develop ideas to carry this big data practices into the future. So uh, with uh, Cord, with this big data, of course, you know, it's been used in business very, very successfully. Now, uh, when it comes to the ethical implications of big data, I think we always had those in mind as consumers. How much of that is also uh, kept in the forefront as organizations are trying to make use of it, and especially for business purposes? Um, the, the ethical aspects in particular, is that what you're uh, asking? Yes, about? yes. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it really is kind of the wild, wild west at this point. Um, one of the one of the sort of um, big preliminary frameworks I try to promote is this idea that there are at least four individual aspects to the ethical implications of uh, big data usage, um, and their identity, privacy, ownership, and reputation. The idea being that at least those four um, aspects or concepts are going to be present in the context of any business business usage around uh, big data, so identity being the questions about who you are online versus offline. Um, obviously, your individual privacy is of, of major concern to everyone. Um, that is, who knows what about you and, and what they do with that personal data. Um, ownership refers to questions about who actually owns the data that you produce and what uh, rights they have to do uh, with it, what they will, or what, uh, what's available to them in the marketplace. And then reputation is another aspect of um, big data ethics, and that concerns uh, judgments that are made about you as an individual uh, by organizations based on what are often necessarily going to be incomplete um, digital pictures of you in your life. So examples in that realm are, um, for example, uh, some insurance companies now are starting to um, gather personal customer data and uh, use some of that information to um, uh, inform how they calculate your insurance premiums. 
So with all said, what all the examples that you provided, what are we truly afraid of as consumers? Are we saying that somebody is going to con us or dupe us in, or, in, in order to sell us more, or we will be denied some services or, or privileges because someone might misinterpret who we are or, or even interpret what we did not, did, did not give them the liberty to do earlier because they want to just reduce their, if you will, credit risk. You see what I'm saying? So it's all an insurance risk. So they are yeah, trying to the, do a sane business, but we are we saying that we don't want to yield control and we want to trick the insurance company? I'm just, just making that as, an, as a case here. Sure. No, and I, I think that's a great question, and I, I think the answer is both and. Um, I, I think part of the challenge around data ethics at this stage of the game is that uh, we don't really know what's going to be done with our data because um, there are people out there doing things that are today completely legal. Um, there are really very few guidelines or regulations around them. Um, the legislation, um, as is uh, it always historically the case, is uh, lags far behind technology innovation, um, and the gap grows wider every day. So there's there are risks there for both individuals and organizations. Um, individuals because uh, there are things being done with our personal data that, on the one hand, we're not aware of and may have a negative impact on us. Um, on the other hand, uh, may provide us as individual consumers with um, great and interesting benefits from features and functionality in, in digital applications. Um, uh, there are some very interesting things being done in agriculture, um, weather prediction, um, you know, big data's uh, technology infrastructure and ability to process um, vast amounts of information very quickly on commodity hardware is just providing us with, you know, unprecedented and unparalleled capabilities to do interesting and beneficial things. Um, but for organizations, there are also risks because what's legal to do with data today might not be tomorrow, and we don't really understand how that's going to play out in the long term. Now, we also have Frank Bytendike, who is a research vice president with Gartner and the author of the book, Socrates Reloaded, The Case for Ethics in Business and Technology. Hello, Frank. How are you? Technical difficulties. So much for being on CIO Talk Radio, right? We are all about technology. So welcome again. Now, uh, we were talking, so Cord and I discussed uh, briefly about uh, the, the situation where we have businesses trying to do, whether they're in insurance or in, in, in retail, to try to know more about us. So are we concerned? And the question was that are we concerned truly about are they going to take advantage of us or they would deny us things which we otherwise were getting earlier? So what are your thoughts on it? So while um, businesses and governments have a, um, as people have a uh, always always a burning desire to know who they're dealing with. So if uh, that is in real life, um, it's pretty normal that in real life you need to be able to identify yourself to the police or in a shop or something if you want to have like a, um, a new contract at a bank or you need to identify yourself. On the internet, that's uh, that's often a little bit. Um, uh, more difficult in, in e-business or digital business, whatever you want to call this. So retailers, insurance companies, and so forth, and so on, every type of business will start to find other ways to identify who we are dealing with and creating profiles. Um, so it's a pretty natural thing that big data is being used for that. Unfortunately, the, uh, the technologies can be so powerful is that the, the, um, the legitimate 
the legitimate goal of who am I dealing with is overshadowed by the all the additional data capture that you do. And that's basically the basis of all the scandals that we have. That the the all the extras around it, same with the NSA, all the extra data, all this huge terabytes of data that is captured as part of the process overshadows the legitimate goal. Whether someone takes food away from me, uh, creates security issues for my family or for myself, or takes away an income potential or a service potential, these are the only things as an individual someone cares for. Are these at risk? Cord. Um, uh, could you give me that list again? So if I am not able to put food on the table for my family, my family's security is at risk. I am being sold something which, or maybe I'm made to spend more. Somebody's literally taking uh, control over me on my mind that I'm being uh, asked to spend more and I end up spending more because I'm feeling that I'm duped or somebody denies us privilege. These are the only things that I really care about as an individual have we been has somebody has somebody taken control of these four things because of big data um i guess you know without knowing all the use cases out there i I would probably say the answer to that is no i think um there are a, a sort of wider variety of areas that concern us about um sort of unknown or uh, unanticipated uses of big data technology. I think, um, for example, the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement uh, as social and political movements are instances which have had uh, massive influence on society and culture um, that use big data infrastructure for communicating and um, coordinating their activities um, that we care very much about and that we didn't anticipate that usage uh, at all. Frank, if you were to look at corporations and if you were given the autonomy to create policies where you say these are the ethical boundaries and these are where you're crossing the line, how would you define something like that? Uh, uh, first of all, I would, um, uh, I would suggest that that's actually the wrong approach. Uh, being ethical about data is not about rules and regulations. We can learn from old Chinese philosophy already, from Confucius, who, uh, who pointed out that if, um, if we know how to behave, there is no need for laws and regulations. Um, a very extreme view, and maybe not applicable to all areas in society. I would, I would, I would like rules and regulations, for instance, around autonomous cars, uh, but for big data, I feel it is much more important that we have an understanding um, and that we have internal controls as professionals that we simply know what is the wrong and the right thing to do as we do in as many parts of life. Um, maybe to quote another philosopher here who wrote a lot about ethics, about Kant. Uh, Kant basically would, uh, would agree with me here that if you're not doing anything, if you're, you're holding back on certain activities because they might harm your brand or you'd be embarrassed or it'd be illegal uh, or there'd be rules around it, that's the wrong motivation. The right motivation is that you're not doing something because it is simply the wrong thing to do, even if it is allowed. Um, so I would uh, not invest my time in rules and regulations. I would invest my time in educating people um, um, on how to think uh, for themselves what is right and wrong. 
So, Cord, if you were to look at this, would you call this as a healthy skepticism because we have that fear of the unknown? Or is this plain outright distrust because we have demonstrable uh, proofs and examples where something was done and it looks like a pattern that's emerging? Um, I think that's okay. Interesting question. The you know the notion. I I, I, I I've been interested in Frank's um, comparison to, uh, around Confucianism, Confucianism, and the notion that I think um, sort of underlies that, at least in um, sort of modern American vocabulary, really is around this notion of uh, values-based management. So the idea being that um, understanding what our individual and commonly held values in an organization are can help direct and align our actions um, so that we act in accordance with those values. And I think that regardless of whether we're afraid of um, knowns or unknowns, I think that if we come from a place of understanding what those individual and commonly held values are, are we're going to have a much more um, sort of strong and, and commonly held perspective on where we're headed into the future. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and look at the the collection versus the usage slash analysis that is performed on the data. Where is the issue with ethics? Are they collecting more than they're supposed to? Are they analyzing and pulling out insights which they are not supposed to? And if they even get it and not use it, where is actually this ethical issue more prevalent? And what are the risks that a company may be uh, running with and or, or assuming maybe knowingly or unknowingly because of this. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to hp.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So, Court, I'd like to uh, request you to see if there's a way we can differentiate in terms of the, the moral boundaries we may be crossing 
whether it is in the data collection, so a company should not be collecting some data, or if they're analyzing beyond what it is supposed to, which they should stop analyzing what they have collected, or finally, it's the use, the, the manifestation of all those thinkings or the malpractices that we fear so much, and that's where this ethical issues is arising. Should they not use whatever they've collected or analyzed? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great topic, and, and it's one that I, I have a lot of conversations around. Um, the distinction that I and, and many other people make is make is that, you know, the um, the the usage of big data it, itself is is sort of um, is the ethically uh, charged part of it, right? Um, the technology itself is is ethically neutral, right? Um, there are you know. Uh, Hadoop clusters and uh, flume filters and all kinds of other you know big data technologies out there that allow us as technologists to do lots of very interesting things um, to benefit society, uh, to generate profit, uh, to innovate in lots of, of other interesting areas. And I think that the technology is out there and that it exists is 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 an ethically neutral proposition. The question is, what do we do with it? And it's in the actual doing of things with that technology that then we bump up against that that moral question. And then, then I think I would revert back to this notion of it's a question about where our values are driving our behaviors. So what do you think? I mean, are are the usage part is where the ethics uh, notion really kicks in? And and when organizations are doing it, do they really are? Uh, because even the attorneys, the way I look at it, attorneys don't know this did not exist 10 years ago. Who knows whether this is a risk or not? Well, so, yeah. So, yeah, today, if you look at the situation today, I agree with court. It's about the usage and what you do with it as an analyst. Let me give you an example on what could easily go wrong and that there's actually rules that, that you can follow. At Gartner, we created a research document called the Big Data Analytics Code of Conduct, and this is also one of the rules that's in. But let me start with an example. Um, I'm sure you've heard of TomTom, the navigation devices. And they were one of the first in the market that were offering bi-directional uh, data traffic. So not only would you get information on the traffic jams, um, you would also upload your speed and your location to the service, uh, to, the, to their server, so you would get like the, the, the traffic jams um, information from the whole community of drivers. So really, really interesting value proposition. You would pay five euro about, about five euro a month more for this service and you would get like online data from where everyone is now faster driving, um, translated into traffic jams. Much more accurate information. There was one little catch to it is that in the terms and conditions it said that TomTom could aggregate and anonymize the data and they did. They did that very well and they could sell it. Um, as one would normally do in, in, in commercial propositions. Uh, the first to buy that data was the Roadworks Department from the Ministry of Infrastructure. And again, really great value of data. Um, why? Because um, ge geospatial analysis would show that if you would overlay traffic jam data with um, Roadworks data, you could see where Roadworks would have extra traffic jams where they were not intended, and so forth and so on. Then the data lands in the hands of the police. The police buys the data. And they think, you know, you can sort the data from slow to fast, and that's called traffic jam data. You can also turn it the other way around. You can sort this fast to slow, and then it is called speeding data. We can use this data to plan speed traps. 
um, as a citizen, you would have you would have to agree that this is smart use of data. It is um, saving taxpayer money. It helps the police to make sure that we're not speeding and not um, endangering um, safety on the roads and so forth and so on. It simply is a good idea. But this is not what the newspapers reported because as a consumer you think like, hang on, that's not what I signed up for, um, to pay extra money to get like speeding fines here. There's a really, really simple rule that is the basis of most of the issues that we have with big data. And that is that when the use of the data is far removed from the original intent, then there's possibly an issue. So the more the use is removed from the original intent for measuring it, the larger the chance someone is going to object to this particular use of the data. This is an extremely important rule. So there's rules. Rules on how people, analysts should behave. Now, I started my, my little story here by saying that I would agree with court today. It's not as such uh, that the technology is amoral, it's ethically neutral, it's the people. However, what we see emerging here is smart technologies. Technologies that learn and start to interact with people. And that is where it becomes more difficult. That is when technology starts to have ethical programming. Let me give you one more example, the example of Siri, the Apple smart assistant. If in a previous, not today anymore, if in a previous usage of Siri, you would ask Siri, hey Siri, I'm going to commit suicide, I'm going to jump off a bridge. Guess what Siri would answer? It would point you to the nearest bridge. That is an amoral, <laughs> ethically neutral answer, but totally unacceptable. So um, Apple has changed this and is now thinking of how do I ethically program Siri to come up with better responses that are not ethically neutral, that basically connects you to a helpline, which is obviously the much better thing. The smarter technologies become, and the more sort of self-acting and self-learning they become, the more ethical program itself is needed, and we cannot maintain anymore that technology is ethically neutral. I think, Frank, that, that follows on to your, your desire to have um, sort of ethically bounded programming in autonomous or driverless cars, right? Yes. In, a, in potential situations where there's a collision and the sensors in a driverless vehicle are able to calculate the number of people involved in, in each of the vehicles that might be um, predicted yeah. to, to collide, we're going to want computer programs that are going to be able to calculate the best outcome for that. And it, 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 those are extremely complex ethical situations. You know, yes. it, it, an individual might think if there's if there's a young child in the other car versus an elderly person, does that change the calculation of what the driverless car might do to avoid or, or be as safe as possible in the event of a collision? Yeah, there's, that's the utilitarian approach. Uh, there's others as well. You can also take Samaritan programming. The car will self-detonate. Right. Um, or you can take <laughs> or you can take a legal approach here, and that is... Um, per the advice of the legal department indeed, uh, turn back the uh, control of the car to the driver in one thousandth of a second so that the driver can make his, his or her own call in the following four thousandths of a second. Right. At least then there is no ethical programming involved. You basically pass on the program. So there's, there's different solutions. But the good thing is that in circles of uh, like autonomous technology, the engineers, as well as lawyers, as well as philosophers, 
this is an extremely um, happening conversation at the moment. I am thrilled that uh, the people are thinking about this. What, what about you, Court? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, my original root motivation for getting involved in, in this topic is, um, aside from my philosophical and technical background, which kind of combined to create the perfect storm, is this notion that we really just, it's a very complex um, uh, new uh, application of interesting technologies that we just don't know enough about yet, and, and we're just starting yes. to talk about them. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that you... Uh, refer back to um, old historical disciplines and, and theories in, in traditional philosophy over the last several thousand years. And I think those are very instructive and useful um, places to start. And I think uh, the, the challenge for individuals and organizations is that we, we just haven't really come up with um, what I think of as, uh, as an in-situ or in-context vocabulary that, that we have in common. Um, you and I have some, and Sanjog has some other ones, and you know other people that we know have different understandings and, and levels of exposure and, and capability to utilize ethical and moral vocabulary in business contexts. So I'm really glad that we're starting to uh, open up those conversations more in, in lots of different areas. Um, the uh, the Data and Society Institute in, in New York City um, was just uh, recently founded and, and kicked off and um, is starting to... Uh, hold formal events. Um, the Office of Science and Technology Policy of the White House in the United States um, just held a series of uh, three public events and issued a public report around that that is, is very instructive and useful. Um, the uh, United States uh, uh, Federal Trade Commission recently came out with some very strongly worded guidelines for um, the uh, potential legislation around um, what can and cannot be done in the data brokerage world, so buying and selling uh, consumer data. And I think all of those are great conversations to have, and I, I just think the more that uh, we're able to open up those conversations and get better at having those discussions and conversations about ethical and moral issues in the context of business environments, the, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with your pretty precise choice of words when you said, like, we're talking about a new application of um, and yep. vocabulary in business terms. Because from an ethical point of view, uh, although the application is new, the thinking behind it is just, let me put it like this, um, it is pretty unlikely that uh, business professionals are going to have like new thoughts around it. It's always built on the, standing on the shoulders of the giants here, um, and there is 25 to 4,000 years of thinking behind this. It, it really does help to read uh, to read a book or two about ethics, business ethics, or just ethics in general, because it'll help you, first of all, where when you have a discussion where others stand, when someone else calls something good or bad and you don't agree, it helps to figure out where someone else is coming from, what he or she is, is subscribing to. And second of all, it is massively helpful to learn what you yourself stand for. You have certain thoughts. You haven't really thought them through. You just feel it is good or bad, but you don't really know why. And if you have a little bit of background of others, 
who have figured it out, you can say, like, you know what, this is what I believe in, this is what I stand for. Uh, some people are utilitarian, there's classical liberals. It's myself, I would consider myself, as another, an, an American school of philosophy, I consider myself much of a communitarian, um, looking for community solutions um, to solve problems. It's, it's um, an American guy, Amitai Etzioni, um, who's been popularizing that. Um, there's different schools of thought that it helps you figure out where you belong. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. And you know, part of the origin story of ethics of big data was, I, I, in my consulting practice, I had been involved in lots of conversations in in working meetings with folks, and there would be oftentimes technologists or uh, typically a, a database architect or, or other uh, programmer who would be in the room, and there would often be product or, or um, uh, product managers or, or marketing people in the room. And and the technologist would say um, something like, oh, by the way, we can now do X, Y, or Z with our data. And one of the product managers or one of the marketing people would jump up and down and get very excited because they know that. And they would say, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Our customers are going to love that. And then across the room, another individual would say, well, yeah, but that's kind of creepy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And and the first person would go, um, no, I don't really think it is creepy. And then they would go back and forth, yes, it is, no, it isn't, and, until they realized that, you know, in the absence of having a common vocabulary and a framework for talking about ethical questions in the context of a business decision, what happens is we revert to our own moral code. And our own moral code is a great place to start. In fact, it's the only place to start. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's important to, to understand where that starting point is. Because what happens, and this is a huge risk for, for both individuals and organizations, what happens is that in the absence of a productive discussion around the ethical or moral questions about a business or technology decision, more often than not, the feature or functionality gets implemented anyway. And so we, we kind of compound our risk because uh, if, if all we can do is stand and, and yell at each other, yes, it's creepy, no, it's not, then we're not going to be able to make very productive and proactive business decisions. Exactly. Let's take a quick Why break, listeners. And what rules are we violating? That's important. Yep, so, Frank, uh, let's hold your thought, guys. Uh, we'll be coming back. It's a great discussion. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's touch the subject that we looks like that the society, the, the associations, uh, experts like yourself, and, and consumers to a corporation, it looks like they're all ganging up and saying, you guys are doing something wrong. What is the response from the corporations, the profit-making corporations who are being, in a way, blamed or indicted with this particular issue? that they are making misuse, they're, they're misusing the data that's been collected and, and, and analyzed as big data. So what is their response? How are they admitting to what is done wrong or what is not done wrong, but they are trying to make sure that it's not going to be uh, you know, misused? So please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right, right back and explore. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. 
Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to hp.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sun Jog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Jog All. Welcome back. So, Frank, it looks like, or at least to some corporations, it looks like the rest of the world is ganging up against them and they're trying to make a decent living. What has been typical response of corporations who are, uh, you know, we have a hunch that they might be tempted to utilize big data in an unethical way? Mm -hmm. Well, typically the response is a legal one. <clears throat> organizations refer to their terms and conditions. They refer to the lack of legislation on the topic. They say, like, hey, uh, it's, perfectly, it's perfectly allowed what we're doing. But terms and regulations and laws in this sense are just um, irrelevant. Um, uh, in the case of, uh, we all know the case of target supermarkets, even truth is irrelevant. The, um, for those of you who don't know the case, target supermarkets handed out pregnancy coupons for... Um, like discount coupons for pregnancy, artic- pregnancy articles to a 16-year-old girl, and her father was pretty much upset about it. And then, then everyone found out that indeed the girl was pregnant. Um, so even truth is irrelevant here. What is relevant is that you break the social code of communication, that you cross the creepy line, that you do things that are perceived not to be okay. And um, that is often to the total surprise of these organizations that then come to the conclusion, like, hang on, we do need to do something, and we do need to have more attention to, um, um, to, the, to the ethical aspects of, of what we're doing. And this is not new. Every time when there's a trend, this is happening. A couple of years ago, does it five to seven years ago, everyone was talking about corporate social responsibility and becoming more sustainable and more green. And I'm sure you pretty much, I hope you remember how pretty much devastated Shell was after the Brent Spar debacle, where they thought it was the best solution to sink an old oil platform. They even looked at it from the ecological side, and it was the cleanest way of doing it. They just didn't take into account the public opinion on this, who said, like, you know, this is just wrong. And the way how the activists, such as Greenpeace, basically attacked Shell came as a total surprise. It's just a repeat of the same thing, just on a different topic. Uh, surprise, legal response, and then doing something. Court, is that what you notice in your workshops, too? Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think there's there's actually a very interesting trend um, growing around this notion of that transparency in data handling practices can become a competitive advantage. 
so that if you're an organization that is very explicit and is very proactive about communicating with your customer base about what values are informing your data handling practices and your business processes, and that you share those out on a, on a regular and consistent basis and don't hide them behind 37 pages of terms of service that you know yes. would take you a month long to read and, and is written in legal language, so that you, you are um, clear and, and explicit and transparent in human ordinary language in a, in a short and concise way. Um, that that actually can build brand loyalty, um, that that uh, makes people trust your organization. You can develop a relationship with them, with your customers, that is that is deeper and stronger and lasts longer. And I think um, the more organizations can turn towards that perspective, the stronger uh, opportunities there are going to be to build that uh, that deeper brand loyalty. No, yeah, I agree. There's yeah, Frank, so question for you here is that people uh, are, are, ex are expecting a lot from organizations who they buy uh, services from or products from, and there are no regular legislation. So are we expecting them to self-police? And if yes, what are our explicit and implied expectations from them so that if they start behaving in that certain manner, then we'll say, okay, you you have my blessing. I will continue to do business with you. And I will I will not talk bad about you as a corporation. Is there yeah, any so, benchmark? Yeah, there, there, well, there's a couple of keywords here. You said like the, the what you the, the products and services what you pay for. And so first of all, we have to consider um, all the free services on the internet that are paid for by the advertisers. And this is why I think the general public is a little bit naive. So it's not only the responsibility of the of the businesses, it's also the responsibility of the, the consumer or the citizen. You just shouldn't be naive on free services. It has to be paid by someone for something. And if if you don't pay for the product, you are the product, as they, as they say. Um, Having said that, the moment you are a customer, um, of course there are certain expectations that, that you can have. Um, when you point out uh, rules and regulations versus self-policing, that is from the angle of like self-policing as an alternative to rules and regulations. But rules and regulations will always lack reality. And that's why I keep stressing and I keep coming back on this point. I do not want to talk about rules and regulations. They are shifting the responsibility to an external source, not yourself. That is useful. It is needed in a number of areas. It is just not the core of ethical debate and ethical thinking. Ethical debate is about what do we as an organization, believe is the right thing to do. Um, you can concur with society, or you can challenge society. Take, for instance, Facebook. Um, lots of people are pointing out how horrible Facebook is in the unethical use of data. I don't think that that is the case. I think that Facebook simply just has a different view on society that they would like to be um, a reality, and they're evangelizing that. So it is, you don't always have to concur with the general public. You can also try and create, um, um, or, or in, not, not, not impose it, not word, you're not trying to promote your own views here. I think that's the word that I'm looking for. But please, please, please do not see this in terms of rules and regulations. As sensible as they are, they're a different topic. They're about compliance. We're talking about ethics today. Different topic. 
I think that's a really interesting perspective on the on the Facebook question, Frank. You know, the, there was that recent revelation that um, Facebook has been or was in recent months um, implementing what they're thinking of as some social scientific programs by um, intentionally manipulating the news feeds and in particular individuals' profiles to see how that might change their behavior on the site. And once people found out about this, they were they went up in arms about it, and they were very upset. And, and I think it's interesting, because uh, I, I think on the one hand, in the moral perspective, you're right that, um, you know, you as an individual can always choose to either align yourself with a, a particular social trend or, or cultural meme or to challenge that, and I think that's right. I think the, the interesting part of that question, I'm curious to what your thoughts are, is that in 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 that particular instance, is Facebook so far outside the normal realm of what uh, individuals might think is acceptable behavior that they're that they are doing something that's that, that ends up being immoral? Is it, is it a question of distance of how far you're pushing it um, to to help determine whether or not something is is ethical? Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes they just. Facebook has been pushing the borders the whole time. On in 2010, Mark Zuckerberg said, "Like privacy is no longer a social norm." Right, that was a pretty right. clear statement, um, and that's that's what they said. Like we we have different social norms. It's if you read the circle by uh, by Eggers, um, you come across Orwellian statements like privacy is theft and um, right. uh, sharing is caring and stuff like that. Um, um, and once in a while, Facebook notices, um, also as a commercial company, they've gone too far and then take a step back and then try again. The A-B testing uh, scandal, what is the last the, 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 two weeks ago, on how they've been playing with filters and ordering messages how to see if that influences mood, um, um, I would call... I would call on the, the, the over the border. That was that was that was silly. They they could and should have done that in a in a different way, in much more of a controlled environment, and should have done that much more through, I think, academic and scientific testing, and much less in the real world. That was really that was skipping a few steps. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I, I, I guess I would tend to agree with you. I think one of the things that might follow from that, if if that reasoning is is accurate, and and I would tend to agree with it that that it is, is I wonder what that means about the relationship between um, organizations who want to be innovators and the sort of commonly held set of values in, in a in a given culture, um, regardless in, uh, of the country or or uh, part of the globe, uh, you know. What's interesting to me about that is, so what what becomes of that relationship? Does does the commonly held set of of cultural values become a barometer around which we um, decide what's innovative and what's legal and what's ethical and what's not? Yes, and it only becomes a barometer if you uh, discuss it with each other. Uh, there's a absolutely there's a fantastic there's a fantastic professor in the United States. I'm sure you know him, Michael Sandel. Um, Harvard's um, Harvard's philosophy professor who wrote this book called What Money Can't Buy. And yep. he argues in that book, and it's related, it's, in a sense it's related to big data, but the central premise of the book is that he says in that book that we've, we are growing or have grown from a market economy to a market society. And these are the consequences. Yep. Are these consequences intended or unintended? And what do you feel about it? And basically what he does is um, he creates, 
public discourse on the topic. And it is it's your job, Court, and it's my job um, here today at CIO Talk Radio and, and in the work that we do to create that uh, that discussion, uh, to create, to be, or to create that barometer. I think that is a perfect choice of words. You, you also mentioned uh, cultural differences. I'm not sure about you. Uh, but I've noticed that a lot of the issues around privacy and big data are remarkably similar around the world. I was presenting, I think, four or five weeks ago in Tokyo, and a number of um, Japanese cases came up, amongst which uh, Japan Rail, um, who is collecting uh, traveler chip card data, mm-hmm. anonymizing and aggregating it, and selling it to retailers, because it's interesting to see who's going where with what profile, etc. Right. That was a big no-no in Japan. Um, Osaka train station, another uh, travel example, installing video uh, face recognition software to basically see, uh, not to recognize people, but to see who, how people are walking through the station as they have yep. hundreds of thousands of people. That was a big no-no. And we always think that Japan is a different world. It isn't. Privacy right. is a deeply human human need um, yep. and uh, in, much we so. may express it in different cultures in different ways but I mean, the violations are the same or the feeling we, it is being violated yeah I, I think there's a there's a very interesting place uh, that I think the audience might be interested in looking to for for precisely that uh, broader discussion um, Doc Searles from the Berkman Center in, in Harvard Law um, uh, who's one of the original thinkers around the clue train manifesto about 15 years ago is working uh, very hard and in, in has written a recent book called The Intention Economy. And uh, the field or the, the topic is has been called uh, vendor relationship management. And the notion is that there are hundreds of organizations now who are interested in building tools and software and other applications of technology to provide greater and enhanced capabilities for consumers and organizations to share and um, and, and collect and, and collate and, and to give individuals uh, uh, greater control over how that data is used, um, which I think is uh, along the lines of um, transparency can become a competitive advantage, uh, giving people a greater ability to express and, and communicate more clearly to organizations when they feel like their privacy is being violated is, is just good. It's just good business. It's good for everybody. Yep. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And, and let's talk about the next set of things that organizations can do and us working together so that if the skepticism goes away, the distrust goes away, we at least will be able to focus on creating value versus bashing each other up. So which, what should be the set of policies, rules, regulations, legislations, and expectations? Where should that synchronization be? so that we have fewer conversations on this ethics and this becomes a lifestyle where we can sleep at night well. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. 
Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to hp.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So uh, we are saying that there is a disconnect between the customers or consumers and the organizations who are utilizing their data for business purposes, innovation purposes, or seemingly unethical purposes. So while we very clearly discuss that there cannot be rules and regulations, it is behooved on, on the organization so that they do the right things for the right reasons, there has to be a meeting of the minds. So, Cord, if you were to outline certain you know, uh, rules of the game, again, not rules in terms of something which is, uh, sure. you know, enforced, but something that our corporations will, will do and consumers will be agreeing that if they do this, life is good. We don't have to talk on this subject anymore. What right. would those be? Yeah, no, I, I, that's a great question. And, and it's something I also talk about quite a bit in, in my work. And I think, you know, my suggestion is always this, that organizations need to think about developing a new capability. And that capability is the ability to have, as we, as we discussed earlier, to, to have ethical and moral discussions be productive in the context of business environments. And where that takes place most often today is in, uh, is in compliance uh, realms. And, and um, there are some organizations that have uh, chief ethics officers. Um, compliance, of course, is, is you know, wholly dedicated to making sure that business operations are, are legal according to existing regulations and, and that they're honoring those, those rules. Um, but as we've, as we've talked throughout today, you know, there's really a broader sort of more human and value-centered discussion that is going to be helpful for organizations to getting to a place where consumers can feel like um, they, they trust an organization's data handling practices, um, that, that the organization can get to a place where they can actually be transparent and explicit and proactive about what they're doing with individuals' data. And I think that's something that organizations are just going to have to learn how to do, and that the, the sooner we're able to evolve those capabilities internally in organizations, whether they're large or small, um, the better off we're going to be. Frank, uh, since there are not as many well-defined rules and regulations, at least, sorry, not the rules and regulations, but legislations, and there is less of a legal pull that the consumer may have on corporations, how far are we from producing something which will make a corporation accountable and think twice before they go in this direction? Otherwise, we will just wait and watch. It's, it's a slow process. Um, in the last 
30 or 40 years, and I think when we look back at this from 100 years from now, we'll think of it as a weird aberration, but we've been all been led by shareholder value. In the history of business, that has never been the case. Um, it's only money. Uh, money you can get everywhere. Uh, business has always been about uh, stakeholder management. Um, if you look at the definition of what is an organization, most people would argue it's a group of people with the same goal. Um, I'm not sure about you. I've never, ever seen a group of people with the same goal, even in a marriage, which is a small organization. <laughs> the husband and wife have different goals. Um, there's another school of thought that says an organization is a group of people that understand that each can reach their own goals through a unique collaboration, which is that organization. If that is your view of what an organization is, that it is a collaboration of people each trying to make their own goals by collaborating, then that changes the definition of strategy. So now we know what an organization is, and we move to what is strategy. Strategy then becomes understanding those stakeholder requirements and contributions and reconciling, connecting them. If that is your definition of strategy, you are well underway to become an ethical enterprise because in your DNA, in your thinking, it is built in to immediately look at this is what's on the table. What does that mean for this stakeholder? What does it mean for that stakeholder? What does it mean for that stakeholder? And how can we connect those different requirements or those different contributions? That's ethical thinking. Now, uh, basically, uh, if, Cord, you were to look at an organization which is, uh, by design, is, is, has got a good DNA, but a few people come at the top level who cannot be challenged or people have a tough time challenging them, how does an organization develop resilience so that they keep doing ethical things and if leader has to change, so be it, but not let the whole organization's reputation be at stake? So how do you develop that DNA? Or how are organizations working towards developing that DNA that a few people don't come and, and spoil years' worth of reputation? Yeah, I, I think that's a very, very tough challenge that organization, many organizations are, are going to have to face in, in, in our lifetimes. Um, I think probably the first place to start looking is for and to, to kind of echo Frank's response to the earlier question. I think the, the question is, you know, what stakeholders are involved? Um, are we a publicly traded company? Um, do we have investors that we need to answer to? Are there, um, you know, is our position in the marketplace, uh, is our brand message something of uh, a thought leadership or social good? Um, and are we doing... Uh, and are we aligned as, as individuals in the organization uh, with those actions so that we can um, continue to support those activities and, and to be able to identify um, places where there are gaps and to uh, develop processes and, and the organizational capability to close those gaps when we find them. To, uh, to start this, is this process that Court describes is really easy, and that is uh, call Court and work with him and uh, <laughs> call Frank um, because there's an interesting principle um, that, that you should get started, I think, if you're interested in this topic. And the, it's called um, the, tenth, the tenth person. Um, and the idea is as follows. If you're trying to achieve something, if you have a strategy, if you have a goal, then there's nine people busy with trying to make that happen with everything that they have. But you organize for one tenth person that has one task, and that's to challenge everything, to make sure that the system and the way of thinking stays sane. 
Um, there's all kinds of practical applications. I'm not sure if you've seen the TV series The Newsroom, which I thought was an excellent TV series. They displayed the same principle. There's one team of reporters working on some kind of a really hot undercover story, etc., that's going to blow the nation. And uh, there's one senior reporter always, and that's called the blue team, one senior reporter that is kept out of everything. No one is talking about it, and, and he or she knows. It's not talking about the story, what it is about, where they're at, what they're Frank, doing. Frank, 15 etc. seconds. Frank, we have 15 yes. seconds to close. It so I would love to get your final thoughts. Yes. Okay. Make sure that you have a tenth person. It might be Court. It might be Frank. It is even better if it is you. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, Cord and Frank. This really could have been a discussion we could have all day long over a cup of coffee, but we have an hour, but we will definitely come back and revisit this topic and talk in more detail. But thank you so much again, both of you, for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much again. And listeners, hope you enjoyed and uh, you'll get some points to think about. Uh, please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Please join Sun Joke All next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time for another hour of CIO Talk Radio on the Voice America Business Channel. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid.